It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Let's start, shall we, by going back to last week's show. This is last week's edition. Here we go. I'm sure the question everyone's asking now is who's going to win it? <laughs> well, I don't know, but I'm going to make a wild prediction, and this could either be the prediction of the year or egg on face immediately, because it involves the first match. I'm going to go for Sean Murphy. Now, Sean Murphy, quite rightly, people are saying, he's not won the tournament. He hasn't. But he beat Neil Robertson, uh, as predicted by me, and he's in the quarterfinals. Uh, a lot of people thought Neil Robertson would win. Sean Murphy's still going. And uh, I say that it could be egg on face, but it could also be the, the, the prediction of all time. <laughs> not that I'll milk it in any way, obviously. Uh, but anyway, Sean Murphy's into the quarterfinals. As I record this podcast, it's a short podcast because the, the Masters is continuing. People are busy watching it. But um, as I record it, we've had four results. And, you know, not wishing to blow my own trumpet. <laughs> Louis Armstrong over here. But uh, three of the results I predicted. Sean Murphy was one. Ronnie O'Sullivan beating Luca Brussel. A lot of people went for that one. Uh, Jack Lazowski beating John Higgins. The one that went down. Well, I said Mark Selby would beat Xiao Zingtong. Now, of course, he didn't play him ultimately because he got suspended. Uh, so he played Hussein Vafai. Um, now, full disclosure, I did actually still fancy Selby there. I thought he was very disappointing in that match, actually. Um, uh, Vafai was very impressive on his debut. And, uh, so three out of four so far. You know, at this stage of the Masters, you'll take that. It's been a very high standard, I think, without necessarily having absolute solid goal classics yet. I mean, the Murphy Robertson match was a good one. But we need a few six fives, I think. That's, uh, you know, always what you kind of hope for. And I'm sure we'll get plenty as the, as the tournament progresses. So we're going to go through the emails, and uh, we, we've uh, had a few come in uh, in the new year. We start with uh, Harley Grayling. Said, good morning. I've only recently started listening to the podcast over the last two months. However, I've made my way through most of the back catalogue, and I've thoroughly enjoyed every episode. Well, that's that's a commitment. Uh, he says, I've taken your advice on the Sean Murphy bet and had a go on it. Well, there we are, you see, you're still, you're still going. Uh, he said, my predictions for 2023 are Ronnie O'Sullivan to win an eighth world championship, Jack Lazowski to win his first ranking title. Neil Robertson to finish top of the one-year rankings. Thank you for providing us fans with weekly content on a sport we all love. Well, thank you, Harley. We'll see. I mean, Lazowski obviously could win the Masters, in which case all the talk of ranking titles kind of seems irrelevant because, 
you know, I mean, listen, I'm not, not dissing any event, but say he won, I don't know, the European Masters, he's not regarded as one of the big events. The Masters itself is, and he would be remembered much more for that than than winning a, a sort of ranking event that uh, maybe doesn't have such a uh, such a sort of um, prestige, shall we say. Uh, now then, of course, we can't gloss over the, the, the story of the 10 Chinese players who've been suspended. It's a very sad business. Jason Ferguson, the WPSA chairman, was on Eurosport and the BBC on day one of the Masters on Sunday, saying that he felt in a couple of weeks we would know if charges will be brought or not. I think after that it will take a bit of time. Obviously, there's got to be proper hearings, there'll be lawyers involved. It may take some time. If, if charges are brought for the hearings to be held and then we'll see if any punishments are going to be handed down. So I, I do still think this is quite a lengthy process. There's been a lot of comment on it. Quite a bit of it has been quite uh, ill-informed, I would say, <laughs> not, not unusually in the modern world. Um, these players have not been found guilty of anything yet. They've been suspended and that's it. Um, we'll see what's coming down the road. But anyway, we've had correspondence on it, as you'd expect. And we start with Adam Wareham. He says, Happy New Year to you. Thanks for another year of enjoyable podcast. I have a couple of questions, one of which is prompted by the sad news about Xiao Sing Tong. Am I right in thinking the Chinese tour players are attached to two, to one of two main hubs, both of which are based in Sheffield, I think. One of them may be called the Victoria Academy. Are the players that have recently been banned uh, from just on the from just from the hubs or neither, one of the hubs or neither, or a mixture across both hubs. I don't want to cast aspersions on either. I'd be interested to see if a pattern is emerging. Well, Adam, the truth is uh, a lot of these players are from the Victoria Academy. That, and again, that's not casting any aspersions. It's just a fact. Um, but, it, it, you know, the, the other academy, you know, the Ding Junhui Academy, is also in Sheffield. There's a, there's a Star Academy in Sheffield. Um, but uh, Sing Tong and, and Yang Bing Tao, the two most prominent players, do play at the Victoria Academy. That's just a fact. I'm not, I'm not saying anything on that. It's just a fact that they do, uh, to answer your question. Now, the other one, on a slightly happier note, Adam says, my second question relates to trophies. Do the winners of a tournament get to keep the trophy for the whole year until the next edition, or do they have to give them back straight after the presentation? Once they do have to return the trophy, do they get a replica or a medal to keep? The reason I ask... I'm curious as to the security of the trophies. I don't know how valuable the World Championship trophy is as a piece of silverware, but as a piece of history, it's priceless. Not all snooker players can afford to live in gated, large gated mansions, and having the trophy sitting on the mantelpiece must be a security risk. The risk is compounded by the fact it's public knowledge when a player is away from home at a tournament. There have been some high-profile cases where Premier League footballers have been burgled whilst playing a match. Snooker players' houses must, on average, be much less secure than a Premier League footballer's house, Although they're less wealthy than the average footballer, having a nice shiny trophy in the cabinet must be an attractive proposition to a cat burglar. That's all for now. Thanks again for the great podcast. And well, thank you, Adam. Yeah, I mean, I it's an interesting point. I don't know how, actually how valuable the trophies are, really. Certainly the newer trophies. I'm not sure what you would get for the sort of English Open, you know, Steve Davis trophy on the, on the, on the, on the black market. But I take your point. It's an interesting one about trophies. Stephen Hendry, when he was in his pomp in the 90s, at his absolute peak, he never had any trophies at home. He kept them all in his club, Spencer's in Sterling. There was a cabinet, and he had a replica World Championship trophy. Uh, in recent times, the players have been offered replicas. They're, they're not full-size. Um, they're sort of, uh, sort of half-size replicas of the trophies. Um, but, yeah, when you win a trophy, you can take it home. You can keep it basically for a year, and then you have to return it. I remember when John Higgins... Uh, won the World Championship for the first time. We're going back 25 years now, 1998. He had the trophy at home and the BBC wanted it for the Sports Personality of the Year. So he had to, they arranged for him to sort of courier it to them and they broke it. 
they broke the trophy because that program they wanted a sort of big table for trophies and with the way they sort of changed studios around basically a load of blokes came in and lifted them all up and one of them dropped the world championship trophy it had to be repaired this is a huge scandal at the time it never came out i'm blowing the whistle on it now a quarter of a century later the bbc broke the world championship trophy and it had to be repaired um but john because it had to be repaired john obviously it wasn't on his mantelpiece for the whole year um although he won it three times again so maybe that didn't uh, matter to him but yeah they do get uh, small replicas um and it's up to them, I guess, where they keep the trophies. Uh, sometimes, I mean, Mark Williams, <laughs> he refused to take home the Pro Series trophy. He said it was no good. <laughs> and when actually, when he won the World Championship for the first time, he left the trophy outside overnight. <laughs> Nobody stole it, thankfully, but he left it outside. I think his neighbour, he said, his neighbour saw it in the drive and went and collected it. So Mark in the realised in the morning what he'd done, went out to, to get it, thought it had been stolen, but actually his neighbour, very kindly... Had taken it inside. Anyway, they, they, uh, uh, they if you saw the uh, Seventh Heaven on Eurosport, the excellent documentary that Alan McManus presented, Ronnie O'Sullivan, a lot of his old trophies from junior years and, and pro years, uh, his mother has them at her house, and that was uh, they, they showed the cabinet there with them all in. Um, nice keepsakes for her. But more on the Chinese story. James Wan has written in. Um, over the past month, I've been trying to process difficult emotions and I finally feel I'm in a position to write to you. I'd like to share my thoughts now with the snooker community out there. I'm a Chinese snooker fan living in the UK. I often go to snooker tournaments by myself as none of my friends are ever interested in joining me. I also happily go to snooker clubs by myself to practice. The reason I can walk solo into the establishments is confidence. It's an unconscious thing. At the back of my mind, I know that Chinese people were well regarded in snooker circles. I know how much we contributed to this great sport. Moreover, I felt that whenever I went to these places, people were generally friendly towards me and I was always welcome. But all that has changed. I've lost all my confidence. Why? Because 10 snooker players and counting are suspended over match-fixing all Chinese. And this is why it hurts. They're nothing like me. I'm not a cheat. I don't gamble. I don't worship money. I believe in fairness and honesty. I believe in being a good sport. But I can't find... Sorry, but I find I can't go to snooker clubs or tournaments anymore. I'm ashamed to go into these venues that I used to love so much because I fear I will be frowned upon. If you don't mind, James, I'm not going to read out your last bit because you mentioned some players there and some comments. And as I say, nobody has been found guilty of anything yet. Let's wait until charges are brought or not brought. But uh, I respect the sentiments there. I, I would say actually, uh, and listen, it's easy for me to say, I'm a, I'm a white British man, but I would say actually... That uh, in general, snooker fans do not think that all Chinese players are cheats. Uh, you look at Ding. Ding is is loved by the snooker community at large. But as I say, that's easy for me to say. I'm not the one uh, like yourself walking into snooker clubs with your experience. But thank you for the email. One thing I would say is, I think the will be, it will be interesting to see if all ten players are charged because if if they're not, let's just say uh, Zhang Tong is not charged with anything and he's allowed back playing. The question would be, why was he suspended? Why did he miss the Masters? And why have aspersions been cast on his career that will never go away? But we'll see. We don't know. And we have to wait. And I think, from what Jason Ferguson was saying, we won't have to wait very long to see what charges will be brought. And, of course, I suspect, and this is my uh, kind of overview on it, I suspect not all of them will be charged with the same thing. There are different offences. Fixing a match is different to having knowledge that a match that a match is going to be fixed. But all this will come out in the wash. Thank you, James. I appreciate what you're saying, and uh, I hope that you do uh, go back to snooker and feel that, that you're welcome there. Colin Johnston. 
Happy New Year to you and your fellow listeners, and to you, Colin. Can't remember if it was yourself or Nick and Phil. They were on another podcast called Talking Snooker. You may have heard our Christmas special. Uh, Nick or Phil, who were thinking of having a referee on as a guest sometime. For, I, for one, would look forward to that. Well, just to say, I have had Paul Collier and Brendan Moore on the podcast. If you check the back, the back uh, episodes, you can listen to both Paul Collier and Brendan Moore. Um, he said, the reason I mention it is I have a question around the movement of referees during a frame. From observing, I'm guessing that referees these days are maybe advised to always be behind a player when the player's on a shot. This makes sense, of course, but going back a few years, I don't recall John Williams, John Street, Alan Chamberlain or Len Gowney, for example, doing this, so maybe it's a reasonably new practice. There are many reasons why O'Sullivan's five-minute or so 147 will probably never be beaten, and I've heard it said that even because of the referee's positioning these days, the maximum in such a quick time will be a challenge, never mind the extraordinary skill required. Having said that, with O'Sullivan's recent century break, that very nearly beat Tony Drago's record for the fastest century. Is the referee's positioning maybe to an extent governed by who's playing and how the speed that certain players naturally play at? Well, Colin, I think I think there was a directive actually for the players to stand for the refs to stand behind the players. But if you're refereeing Ronnie in particular, the pace he plays, all he wants really is the referee to just be still, even if he's in his online, just be still and allow him to play at the pace that he um, wants to play. I, I told this story before, but there was a, a match at the Champion Champions where Ronnie was playing and he was winning the match easily. And he was on a big break, and I was actually watching Paul Collier refereeing, and Paul. One of the very best. He's played snooker. He understands the game inside out. And he was bang on the money. He was in the right position in terms of allowing the break to continue at the pace the player wanted to play it. He was still. He was ready. He anticipated the next shot. He knew where he needed to be. And, yeah, so it's not impossible. I mean, you mentioned the the recent uh, three-and-a-half-minute break that O'Sullivan made in the Home Nations event. It's not impossible that we'll see another maximum, you know, in that time. It seems unlikely, I know what you're saying, but it was unlikely at the time. <laughs> Len Ganley was the referee for that one, and uh, we've had comments on this podcast before about his, his uh, the way he contributed to that break. But I, th- I think it was the case that uh, referees were told, you know, to stand behind the player. But it, it, I think that they sort of judge it on the merits of the match, and, uh, you know, common sense is always good, isn't it? Now, Liam McMullen... Thanks as always for the great, I'll start again, Liam. Thanks as always for the continued great work on your podcast. It's always a great listen. Just, thank you. Just a quick one. I'm no YouTube person whatsoever, really. I'd occasionally search for the odd video to help a DIY project and that'd be about it. But recently I discovered the relatively new Stephen Hendry Q-chip. <laughs> I'll put my teeth in and start again. Recently I discovered the relatively new Stephen Hendry Q-tips YouTube channel after a brief mention on the Talking Snooker podcast, I believe. It may have been mentioned on Snooker Scene in the past, but if not, or even if so, I wanted to give it a real shout-out for anyone who may not have discovered it yet, like myself. In an ever-growing time of people asking for more and differing snooker content, discussion on how to engage different or younger audience, I really feel that this channel is a fantastic watch with tips from Stephen and other pros, but also really engaging interviews, challenges and tips from current professionals. Even as a young celebrity from Love Island. I discovered after a Google. This is Chris Hughes, who, who we'll come back to later. Uh, I'm doing a long potting masterclass. Whether, whether like myself, Love Island isn't your cup of tea, it's still great to see this kind of current celeb content being put out there. It's a really great channel, and I sat and watched all current stuff on there for hours like it was TV. Highly recommended. Thank you, Liam. I completely agree. I think Stephen Hendry has done a great job with that. Obviously, he's got a little team of people who, who do it as well. This is exactly what we need. You know, you, you hear current players, and Hendry's still on the tour, sort of. He doesn't seem to play, but he's, he is a tour player. 
but obviously he's a snooker legend. But you hear certain players saying things should, should change and we should do different things and things need to move on. But what they mean is other people should do it. <laughs> Stephen Hendry's actually doing something himself. You know, there's a lot of top players who could have YouTube channels who could do this stuff. They don't. Stephen Hendry is doing it. What's interesting about that is when he was at the top, you know, his relationship with the media was very actually very friendly, but he, he could be difficult when he'd lost. You know, I mean, he was hard to get anything out of when he'd lost. He wasn't necessarily someone who was that comfortable, actually, in the media spotlight. But he's relaxed a lot. You know, he's got nothing to prove now. Does a lot of punditry, of course, for BBC and ITV. And his Q-Tips, <laughs> if I could pronounce it, I could praise it. His Q-Tips YouTube channel is brilliant. It's exactly what Snooker needs. It's exactly the sort of thing World Snooker Tour should be doing, and aren't, frankly. Um, he's leading the way, as you say, on YouTube. You know, it's it's really engaging. It's fun. It's for snooker fans, but it doesn't exclude non-snooker fans. And this is what I've been saying for a long time. We need content that is not just aimed at diehards. However, his content, diehards will enjoy. As you've said, you've watched hours of it, but it's also accessible. So Chris Hughes is the guy from Love Island. You know, a young guy with a different demographic. He's got two million Instagram followers. He's got half a million Twitter followers. So there's a lot of people who follow him who will be watching these videos who are not necessarily into snooker, but it's kind of fun and it's different. And because of him, who knows, they may say, oh, well, Snooker's cool, let's go and uh, watch it, let's play it. Um, and I mentioned him last year and I said, because he's a friend of Judd Trump's, will Snooker Tour should get him involved? They didn't, but Stephen Hendry has. And I, I absolutely endorse um, what you say. I think his content's really good, worth following. And I'm glad to see Stephen enjoying doing it as well. You know, it's something different for him. Um, when when you sort of retire, and I know he's not strictly retired, but when you retire, you have a choice, don't you? You can either do what Steve Davis did, which is essentially follow a completely different career, music, uh, just about, or or you stay in snook and you find a niche for yourself. And Stephen, obviously, you know, is much in demand for the punditry, but this is something that is his. This is his thing under his name. And he's made a great success of it. And, uh, yeah, a lot of, st lot of stuff on there worth checking out. So, uh, Stephen Hendry Q-Tips, a YouTube channel. Not easy to say, but easy to watch. On a similar theme, by the way, this week, and I don't work for Netflix, but this week, Netflix are bringing out a behind-the-scenes documentary on the ATP tour in tennis. Another sport with one of these Drive to Survive, all-or-nothing style, uh, behind-the-scenes documentaries. Again, Snooker lagging way behind. Exactly the sort of thing, and yes, it would be, <laughs> you'd see it warts and all, it wouldn't all be positive, but it would show people what snooker's actually like behind the scenes, you'd get to engage with the personalities. We can't just have people following players as potters, they have to follow them as people as well. That's how you, that's how you get behind somebody, by knowing their story. Look at Ronnie O'Sullivan, obviously the way he plays, people love but there's an engagement with his whole story. Mark Selby, you know, his background I know, has moved a lot of people. Neil Robertson coming from Australia. We need to promote the personalities of the players more and that sort of series that's on Netflix, I think we'll do that. And I, by the way, on Netflix, I should say this because I was asked to. Um, the documentary that has been filmed on Ronnie O'Sullivan that will be out this year has been variously described, including by myself, as a Netflix documentary. There is no current broadcaster for it so it's not necessarily going to be on netflix it hasn't been made by netflix i can't say whether it'll end up on there or not it will end up somewhere but it's not a netflix documentary that was sort of shorthand that people used i used it myself so apologies to the uh, documentary makers um looking forward to seeing it but it's not actually strictly speaking 
a Netflix documentary. Now, Christine, this may this may well be a really stupid question. Well, Christine, it may be a really stupid answer. Let's see. Uh, but it's been, she says, but it's been bugging me for a while, so I thought I might as well ask. Mark Williams has a picture of himself and John Higgins from the 2018 World Final on the wall of his practice room, along with the quote, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. I just don't understand the relationship between the quote and the picture. Who's talent? If it's Mark's, is he reminding himself that he is talented, but he still needs to practice? It doesn't seem right, as the picture is from a match he won, and he doesn't seem to need any further motivation to practice after that peak achievement. If he sees John Higgins as the more talented one, that implies Mark has won through his own hard work, but also that Higgins was lacking in this. doesn't seem right either, although I'm sure Mark does work hard. Does Mark see Higgins as a more naturally talented than he is? The most obvious talented player is Ronnie. Is this a swipe at him, not being in that final and put up before Ronnie's last two wins? Doesn't seem to be Mark's star, but maybe he's messing around. The display does turn up in various pictures and videos online, which makes me think it's intended for a wider audience than his own private reflections. Is it a message for the other up-and-coming players at his club? Am I overthinking this? Please help me. Well, uh, you possibly are overthinking this, but uh, <laughs> but anyway, the, the uh, it's, a qu- it's not his quote. The quote... He's attributed, I looked this up, the quote is attributed to a gentleman called Tim Notka, who was a high school basketball coach. And essentially what it's saying is that uh, hard work essentially beats talent. You can't just turn up because you're good at something without putting in the work. So it's saying you have to work hard, and if you work hard, then that trumps any natural ability. Now, we go back to Matthew Syed, who we mentioned before on this podcast, a former table tennis player. He wrote a book called Bounce. The whole thesis, the whole manifesto there was saying that essentially natural talent is something of a myth and that all successful sports people are there through the 10,000 hours of practice principle. I agree with that to an extent, not entirely. I think people do have natural aptitude for things, you know, hand-eye coordination and all the rest of it. But you can't just get you can't get to the top just with that. You need to put in the work, and that's what you don't see. You don't see the players putting in the, the thousands of hours of practice. Matthew Side's point was he said that there was a stage where he was ranked in the top ten in uh, in British table tennis, and the other nine members of the top ten all lived within a couple of miles of him in Reading, and that's because the National Training Centre was in Reading. <laughs> so, and, and you know, there's something in that. It's about opportunity. And it's about facilities and it's about then how hard you work. So that's Mark's kind of reminder, I suppose, if he's in the practice table, uh, in the practice room in the club to put in the work. Um, so I think that basically, uh, is where that comes from. It's an American, uh, it's an American saying, one of the very few inspirational quotes not attributed to Winston Churchill, uh, Winston Churchill spent, uh, his whole life, it seems, dashing off these inspirational quotes and, and winning world wars. That was the, the twin occupations. Anyway, uh, now then. Nathan Manley, he's in Australia. He says, good day, Dave. Happy New Year to you. Nathan Manley from Australia here again. I'm just back from three weeks. Now, Nathan here, he's basically just telling us what a great life he's living. But I'll read it out anyway, <laughs> because it's absolutely chucking it down with rain here in, in the UK this morning. But anyway, uh, I'm just back from three weeks holiday at the beautiful coastal town of Port Ferry, where my family and I have been enjoying plenty of time surfing and boogie boarding in the ocean and lots of walks along the beach. Listen to your podcast on my beach walks on my new Bluetooth sunglasses. 
got me thinking I should write to you with a few random thoughts on the game. Number one, I wonder how much the Australian climate has to do with the lack of top snooker players being produced here, apart from Robbo. How many people are going to spend hours playing and practising inside when they can be enjoying great weather most of the year? Maybe that's why a lot of great players come from areas where the weather is much colder. Just a thought. I think that's a great point. I've I've kind of thought this myself, Nathan. Um, Neil Robertson played snooker because his dad ran a snooker club, but also his parents were divorced. So it was a way of spending time with his dad. So it was an incentive to do something that his dad also enjoyed. Now, in another circumstance, maybe he would have pursued you know Aussie rules or cricket or whatever um rugby you know anything outdoors but it was snooker it was a very personal reason why he went into snooker uh number two from Nathan congrats on your 25 years in snooker here are some of my memories from snooker as a kid I watched pop black on tv in the early 80s and then not hearing or seeing anything about the game again until around 2004-5 when one of the pay tv channels would do a highlights package show on some of the tournaments. Nothing was live, of course, and those shows were quite often on weeks or months after the event. The closest I could get to watching live snooker was sitting on my very old computer and watching the scores tick over during the 2006 World Championship. No actual footage, just the two players' names in the frame and break score on the screen. Due to the fact Australia is on the other side of the world, it meant that it was about 3am. Uh, a mate of mine wrote a letter to a snooker magazine stating he'd like to be able to buy some videos and matches, etc., they were very nice to send him a video called 30 Years of the Embassy World Championship, which we treated as our Bible. The game has come a long way now, where I can watch any tournament live on the Matchroom app. Well, I'm glad that, because we've heard, uh, Nathan, we've heard people say that they've struggled around the world to find Snook. I'm glad that you can watch it on the Matchroom app. Uh, that's, that's good to know. Number three, I wish we could get a tournament back here in Australia. The Goldfields Open, which is in Bendigo, three hours drive from my home, wasn't really the best place to have it. We were talking about this with someone the other day. Um, I say we, I, I can't remember who it was now, but I was talking about this and we were saying it was a shame uh, that that went because I think that just, the, I mean, obviously the tennis is coming up, but just the, 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 the sort of the name of the tournament, Australian Open, you know, is impressive. And it has to be said, you know, we've gone to a lot of places and we've tried events and they haven't quite grown in the way that, you know, we would have liked. Why it was in Bendigo, I'm not entirely sure. I suspect money from the local authority probably was contributed and that's usually the way. It would be nice to get it back there, particularly, of course, with Neil Robertson's success. It seems a shame that, you know, we don't have that, uh, we don't have that event on anymore. He got to a couple of finals, Neil, but didn't quite win it. Number four, I love the length of the Christmas special podcast. I wish all of your episodes were this long. Well, of course, you're walking along beaches in Australia, Nathan. <laughs> so you, you, you can take the time to listen. It was long. I, I think, uh, too long, really, but uh, I, it was enjoyable as well. It's still there, available to listen because we're talking Stuka. He says, anyway, enjoy, I hope you enjoy the rest of the season. I'm really looking forward to seeing who wins in Sheffield as hasn't really been a form player this season. Well, thank you, Nathan, and uh, good to hear from you in Australia. Uh, and I think we're now going to go to, well, we're not going to go to America, but we're going to talk about America with Brian Campbell. He says, Happy New Year to you. My ears pricked up during your last podcast when you were talking about your hopes for the year. And you mentioned a tournament in the US. Although this may seem like sacrilege to purists, would the best way to break America be a snooker shootout style tournament? Instead of one-frame matches, perhaps we would need the best of nine or eleven so we weren't flying players all around the world for potentially just one frame of snooker. I think the advantages would be that this commercial, that in this commercial world, snooker would become an easier sell to TV with guaranteed ad breaks every ten minutes. In addition, as pool is a very popular cue sport in the US, perhaps short, snappy, fast-moving frames would encourage those fans to take more of an interest 
as a fear that long tactical battles for those perhaps new to snooker may not, may not be appealing straight away. What are your thoughts? Well, Brian, I, te- I sort of agree with you. I'm not saying necessarily the shootout would be the format. We certainly, if there was an event in America, and none's been announced yet, this is just, I've just pulled this out of the air really, but if there was an event in America, we can't go there with some lumbering best of 19 affair, clearly. It has to be palatable. It's a sort of taster. It's an introduction for the American fans. So the matches would have to be short. But as you say, you don't want to fly people around the world, you know, to play for 15 minutes. So whether the adapting the shootout idea to have a best of nine sort of affair, that, that might be an idea. I don't know. Um, but it would have to be, I think it would have to be definitely short form. You have to recognize the market and where you are. And you make a good point about TV. You know, t- TV ads in America are far more frequent than in the UK. So they don't want to wait half an hour for an ad break. So all that, I'm sure, would be factored in, um, but we'll see. I, I think that, uh, you know, it's sensible to look at where you're going and what the kind of climate, the environment is there in terms of sport and try and fit in with that while at the same time still actually it's recognisable snooker. So that's the challenge, to take snooker to America that is still recognisable as our game, but that fits in with their whole TV sports environment. And I'm sure if we go there, and I'm not saying we will do, but if we go there, that that is what they will look at. Now, Thomas Bartley, you say, you say here, Thomas, this is more, uh, this is not necessarily for inclusion of the podcast. I'm going to imp- include it, though, because I think it is interesting. So I hope you don't mind me reading it out. Um, my name is Thomas Bartley. I'm a history student at the University of Warwick and also a big sports fan, including snooker. In my spare time, I do a bit of writing about darts, another big interest of mine. My interest both in history and sport have often been coupled and therefore I was very intrigued to hear in your your history podcast last year about the game's connections to Birmingham. The fact I was essentially unaware of much of this, despite living locally, demonstrates that it's that it is so under-researched and under-celebrated. And so this leads to the focus of my email. As part of my undergraduate degree, we're invited to make proposals for research topics to be completed after the summer term. For me, this seems like the perfect topic. It is of great interest to me and is somewhat locally based and is most certainly not an oversaturated part of history. My preliminary research on the topic has mostly been focused on what's available on the web, of which there is some. But obviously, if I was looking to take this further, I'd be looking to do some archival research of my own and hopefully publish some of my research. I wanted to get in touch to ask what your advice would be to me on who to contact and where to look. My main interest is in Camkins Hall on John Bright Street, Though dependent on how my research on this goes, it could well extend further to a general focus on Birmingham, the West Midlands and their connection to the World Snooker Championship. I apologise for the lack of directness of this email, but I figured it required some background information. Thank you for highlighting this fascinating topic in your podcast. Well, Thomas, thank you. And this sounds very interesting. Um, I guess Birmingham City Council would be the first port of call because they keep all the records, the planning applications and details, I guess, of, for example, what replaced Campkins Hall and when. Um, I have to say, I don't know specifically who you would, who would contact there, but there must be people um, in that uh, pretty sprawling bureaucracy who can help you. We also, of course, in Birmingham have the Central Library, uh, where I suspect there must also be archives kept. It may be worth contacting them and seeing what information they keep. Um, I know that's not the most helpful response, but th- they would be the two ports of call that, that I would suggest that the, the uh, Birmingham City Council, uh, the planning uh, department, if they keep archives, and you would hope that they would, and the Birm- and Central Library, uh, maybe drop them an email and see what information they have 
if any, about the sort of history of buildings in Birmingham. Um, I would love to see, if you do uh, pursue this, I would love to see the results of it because the, 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 the episode you mentioned, your history, I went down to John Bright Street where the first world final was held. There's no sign of any, you know, no sign of it. Uh, the building is now, I think, a casino. I'm not sure. But anyway, it's it's no longer there, the Campkins Hall. And, uh, you know, this is a kind of... Because we don't have permanent venues in snooker it was a billiards hall initially but it got obviously knocked down at some point but it'd be interesting to hear the history of that and uh, any any information you do find out let us know i'm going to end with gary park uh, the reason for that is it's the last email <laughs> um thanks for the excellent gary park right thanks for the excellent podcast so far this year and a belated happy new year and to you gary i'd like to comment on one fairly minor aspect of tactical play but one that had started to bother me of late it seems to have become more common for top players to attempt really thin cuts on reds that they can see full ball when trying to play long safety shots from bulk. This often leads to a complete miss and replacement of the cue ball. As everyone knows, under the existing rule, this costs them four points for each of the two attempts and the forfeiture of a frame on the third occasion, which of course never happens. Well, actually, it does sometimes, in fairness. Anyway, it always strikes me that this basically amounts to two virtually free goes at putting one's opponent in real trouble because there is the absolute minimum of risk involved. This seems unfair, because unlike, say, taking on a long pot, it's very unlikely that one's opponent will be left with a clear-cut chance to make a frame-winning break. To me, the risk-reward equation of this seems well out of balance. I don't condemn players for doing this, it's within the rules. And many of those who exploit this rule, tactically, are always very sportsmanlike and indeed are great ambassadors for the game. They're merely playing to the rules as they're entitled to do, but I think that the imbalance between risk and reward should be addressed. I would propose that it remains the case that the miss that the first miss carries a penalty of four points and that the cue ball can still be replaced. But on the second occasion, the other player is allowed to place the cue ball anywhere in the D or even in bulk to play the next shot. This, I think, would mean that players will have only one attempt in practice at the very thin cut safety shot and that on the second attempt, they would have to play something more risky, thus restoring the balance between the two players and creating more positive play. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, well, thank you. Well, it's... um. <coughs> Yeah, it it is a slight anomaly that you can essentially you can essentially not deliberately miss first time, but you can exercise caution, and the worst that's going to happen is you get docked four points or your opponent gets four points. Now those four points later on in the frame, I always think this can make a difference. Maybe you know you could if the black's on the cushion, you maybe your opponent won't need it. But in essence, it's a free sort of guide. Obviously, you don't want to hit it too thick and, and, and leave your opponent in amongst the reds. Now, whether the solution to that is what you say, have the ball, not strictly um, anywhere, but in the D, um, and what difference that necessarily will make, I don't know, because it depends on the shot you're playing and where the balls are. Um, I get your point, uh, but I think the fact, is, the fact that on the third attempt, you know, there's the risk of losing the frame. Actually, the stakes are suddenly raised, aren't they? They're escalating pretty, pretty sharply from... A couple of free goes to suddenly I've got to hit one. Um, so I think like a lot of these things, we bat around solutions, but ultimately we tend in snooker to err, err on the side of caution. I think one of the best things about snooker is we don't actually look to change many of the rules because once you start, you're never quite sure what avenue you're going down and there may be things you haven't thought about that could sort of you know rebound. I mean, if you get players together, you know, they come up with all sorts of ideas. There was one, one guy who thought there should be two cue balls. 
<laughs> it was never explained why, but uh, but anyway, it's an idea. I think people will certainly agree with the uh, the sort of tenor of what you're saying. Whether your solution is the one, I think you'd only really find that out if if you tried it. Um, and I'm not sure there's a massive clamour to do that, but um, anyway, it'd be interested to hear other people's thoughts. Well, that's it. Thanks for all the emails, and uh, do let us know what you feel about the Masters uh, when we return next week. Uh, let's see if Sean Murphy's won it. Uh, he's going to be here till Friday evening at least, because that's when his match is <laughs> in the next round. But uh, anyway, you know, he's well done to Sean for beating Neil Robertson. And, uh, of course, he's now commentating with the BBC. Double bubble. I can't beat it. Uh, so the Masters continues on the BBC and Eurosport, Matchroom Live and various other platforms around the world. In the meantime, we're proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out their other podcasts. You can email us at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's podcast at mail.com. And we will see how the week uh, unfolds. I think the good news is, so far anyway, is the, the whole match-fixing thing. It was dealt with by the broadcasters, I think, well on Sunday. But he's not dominating the event. We're not dredging it up at every opportunity. It will play out in its own way. We don't know how. And we will address it fully when it does. But for now, let's concentrate on the snooker. The Masters is a great event. And uh, I'm fascinated to see who's going to win it. So enjoy the rest of the week. And as we always say, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.